right, everyone. Hello. Welcome back to Unguarded by the Guardian Scholars Program at CSU Bakersfield. We are well into February now, and we have a really special episode planned for you today. We have a guest from on campus, and um, we're really excited to have him here with us. Before we ask him to introduce himself, I'm going to remind you to please check out our social media handles. We are on Linktree at CSUBGSP. We are on Instagram at CSUB Guardians. So make sure you follow us, check us out. You can find our podcast on Spotify um, and other streaming services. But anyway, we're glad to have you back. Thanks for joining us. And I will let our special guest introduce himself to us today. So. All right, hello everyone. My name is uh, Darius Riggins. Um, I am the Director of University Outreach here at California State University, Bakersfield. Uh, and uh, my department primarily is responsible for going out into high school specifically to talk to students about uh, going to college and particularly coming to CSUB. Uh, because of the way the CSU system is structured, if you, in case you didn't know, there's, there's 23 different CSU campuses. And when it comes to outreach and recruitment, all of us are given a certain geographical location where we concentrate our uh, recruitment efforts. Uh, the majority of the students that come to CSUB actually come from the surrounding area. Uh, but our given area as far as recruitment um, is all of Kern County, uh, Southern Tulare County, Northern LA County, focusing on uh, Palmdale, Lancaster, and then going out as far as Mono and Inyo County, so up where Mammoth Lakes is. Uh, so that's our entire territory. So it's a pretty big area. Uh, and of course, um, we focus a lot just right here in Kern with the Kern Unified School District, where that makes up 18 um, of the schools uh, that we go to. Mm -hmm. um, in that area, we, we cater to 36 high schools. And so what that means is there's 36 high schools where we do direct and specific intentional recruitment. Mm -hmm. um, of the high schools that are in that area, but not part of the 36, uh, we still, we still uh, you know, go to them. However, we primarily go to them either once a year or by request. Okay. Um, so um, a little bit more about me. I, um, you know, I kind of fell into uh, this career as far as stu student affairs type of work, uh, dealing with students. Um, you know, I, I didn't go to college to become a uh, uh, CSU administrator. Uh, you know, I, I actually went to school thinking I was going to be uh, a civil engineer. Uh, my father had started a construction business back in Alabama, and he said, hey, why don't you uh, be an engineer and come work for the family? So I was like, okay, cool. That, you know, that sounded good. Uh, but of course, once I started uh, my path um, at Cal State Northridge, um, I found out that I was a people person and I had other interests and other things. Um, and I, I was involved as a student, um, as a student activist, involved with the Black Student Union. I also was involved with Associated Students, the University Student Union, uh, as well as the National Society of Black Engineers for the time frame that I was a civil engineering major. Mm -hmm. um, my career got started working in housing, actually, and I was mm -hmm. thinking I was going to be a, a director in housing, you know, because I was learning that craft and learning that field. Um, and so my, my first job uh, out of college was an assistant area coordinator at Cal Poly Pomona, where I stayed there for a year. Then I jumped back to Northridge um, and was working in housing and then left housing to become an academic advisor and then left academic advising to go into recruitment. And so my first recruitment job was with Cal State San Bernardino. I spent six, six years there as a recruiter. Then I stepped up to be an associate director uh, by way of Cal State Channel Islands. And I spent four years there as an associate director for outreach and recruitment. And then um, an opportunity came to, to become the director of outreach here at Cal State Bakersfield. Uh, and so I've been here now uh, going on six years. So I've actually worked for five Cal States, uh, which is interesting kind of making my way around, so to speak. Uh, yeah. But um, yeah, so I've been doing this now um, a little bit more than 22, 23 years. Uh, as far as being a professional, uh, 15 or 16 of the 16 of those years uh, being um, uh, in outreach and recruitment. Um, wow. Yeah. So probably, you know, what's the weirdest thing about that 
it, it's weird because now with with all the the schools and and with with Cal State and recruitment and stuff, um, I, I guess they consider me an OG now, <laughs> and that and that's 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 kind of weird uh, to get used to because when I first started, of course, there were people that were uh, in my same position, having many years of experience. They were well known. Uh, uh, they 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 were popular, uh, and so people would you know, oh, that's so and so, that's so and so. You know, and so now when, when I go to events where there's a lot of young recruiters or, or a lot of Cal States, you know, I, I hear the whispers about me. Oh, this Gary is from Bakersfield. You know, it's kind of weird <laughs> to, awesome. to hear that because I, I kind of feel like, well, you know, we're all doing the same job. We're all doing the same thing. Yes, right. I've been doing it longer than you, but, you know, I, don't put me on a pedestal. You know, I'm, I'm nobody. You know, I'm just like you, you know, so. Uh, so, but yeah, that's a little bit about me. Well, I'm going to assume that CSU Bakersfield is your favorite CSU since you've been around the track a little bit. <laughs> well, 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 you know what? This is what I tell recruiters. I say, you know what? Whatever Cal State you're working for, that's the best Cal State. <laughs> yeah. Really? I mean, I mean, that, that, that's how you have to look at it. I mean, yeah. we all we all have friendly competition with other universities or whatever. But whatever right. university you work for, you're representing. That's the best Cal right. State. So people ask me this all the time. I say, oh, well, what? what was the best school you've worked for so far? I'm like, well, I work for Cal State Bakersfield. So that's right. the best Cal State. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's right. just the way it is. <laughs> or we could just say we love the CSU system, which obviously <laughs> we do because we're committed to it. So that's another way of kind of getting around that question. But, you know, I had to give you a hard time about that one. I didn't know that about your background. That's really cool. Yeah. You have worked on a lot of campuses. That's amazing. Yeah, I moved around. And, and the cool thing is every time there was a move, you know, it was kind of like a promotion. So I, right. I kind of feel like I'm in the military and going around to different military bases yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, there's upward mobility. So that's cool. That's awesome. Darius, what do you like to do in your, just your private time, your non-campus time? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, I grew up in an era of, um, I guess what is now old school hip hop, you know? So yeah. I listen to a lot of old school hip hop, you know, um, I'm not really much into the new stuff. If if you gave me some names, only the real popular ones I would know. Uh, but um, you know, I, I still listen to Run DMC and LL Cool J and Kumo D and yes. uh, uh, Public Enemy. That's my favorite group of all time. Um, Eric B and Rakim. I mean, uh, and 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 if I really want to get really crazy and and just uh, trip out only for a little while, because at some point in time I have to turn it off because I really don't like vulgar uh, lyrics and language. Right. You know, I'll still listen to NWA sometimes. I mean, that's just that's because I just grew up in that era and and grew up with them and saw saw what took place. You know, literally from my eyes. You know, while I was in school. Uh, but but also, um, I'm also um, an ordained minister. Um, I'm a, a, a tenured elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. So um, you know, I, I of course uh, read the Bible and and, and regard uh, uh, my relationship with God very very seriously. Um, and then, and then lastly, what's taking up a lot of my time right now, um, and I talked to you a little bit about this earlier, I'm in the doctoral program here at Cal State Bakersfield. So um, there's a lot of my time going to reading and research and writing right now as well. Right, right. It's kind of nice, though, to re-enter that world, right, as a student. I think, I think it's, I mean, we're obviously lifelong learners. I think all three of us are. Um, but I think that that's a nice place to return to at some point. Are you finding that? Yeah, well, uh, um, uh, you're, you're right. Um, lifelong learning is is very important. Um, education is important. I mean, that, that's why I'm in this field. Mm -hmm. um, I, I take much um, uh, pride and, and, and I'm very appreciative to be able to talk to students about their education and making sure that they do something after high school. Right. You know, um, e even though I, I um, primarily focus on high schools and their transitions to a university, um, I would even tell any student, hey, look, if college is not for you, okay, but still do something. Go get a trade, go learn to do something after high school because you're gonna increase your opportunities for uh, financial stability, for upward, upward mobility. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, you can look at it right now, there is a big fight. One of the, one of the, one of the big fights uh, across the United States as much as we're dealing with you know, is this issue of minimum wage and, and, and it being raised. And so, you know, I think here in California, I think we've already passed 
that um, eventually our minimum wage is going to be is going to go to fifteen dollars an hour. Uh, we already here here at Cal State Bakersfield, we already we already pay our students fourteen something dollars an hour. Uh, but of course, Joe Biden, our new president, is trying to push a, a federal uh, mandate that you know minimum wage across the United States is fifteen dollars an hour. And why is that? Well, because the the minimum wage was is never was never well. I, I can't say that. I was I was going to say it was it was never meant for something, but let me back up and say that uh, because of inflation, minimum wage is not a livable wage, right. and because people can't live on minimum wage now, there's this press to push it and try to get it up as high as possible. And you know, my 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 and my response to that is that well, you know what, that may be true, but the reality is we're still going to deal with inflation. At some point in time, fifteen dollars an hour is not going to be enough. And 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 I I will make an argument that that is not enough that you need just a little bit more, and so for those people that desire that, well, the one of the best ways to do that is to increase your education, go beyond just the high school diploma, uh, because of those uh, benefits uh, that comes with it. Right, great argument for that, and you know a great argument for accessing higher education, no matter what point we have to start at, right? So that's one of the reasons why we wanted you on our podcast today, Darius, was first of all, to get to know you a little bit better. Um, I think sometimes our students don't get to know us past our titles, past our, you know, our positions and, and sometimes past our office doors. They're afraid to come in and talk to us, you know, and we wanted to get to know you a little bit more, understand your work a little bit more um, and to see, you know, what you like about what you do and, and what motivates you and what keeps you out there you know, recruiting. And so I'm going to introduce my co-host, um, who is Steve Walsh, the director of EOP. And Steve, I'm going to hand it over to you and have a conversation a little bit more about the department with Darius. So welcome, Steve. Hey, Steve. Thank you. Hey, good to see everybody. And thank you for having me. Um, you know, Darius did the best introduction of himself and his department um, that, that could be done. Uh, what I want to kind of preface, no, it doesn't have a preface because we're already, we've already introduced the department, but I want to go back a little bit, uh, mm -hmm. talking about being an OG. I'm going to go back, way <laughs> back in the day, uh, to a time before I was even born, 1965, civil rights movement, 1969, the creation of equity programs like EOP at, at uh, this, the California State Universities, and what outreach meant at that point, because I don't want, I don't want you to, to leave this podcast without you know, the listeners understanding exactly what a revolution outreach was, um, you know, and how important your department is to the campus. You know, when, when they opened up the CSUs to, um, you know, what they called special admission back in, back in 69 with the Harmer Bill, um, they said that they would allow 2% of the students to be uh, special admits. And then campuses said, okay, well, these will be typically underrepresented students. Back then they would use the word minority, which they don't uh, throw out too much anymore, but there were things like the minority student program uh, that popped up on campuses. And it was great that they opened up, right? It was great that there was a little bit of money thrown out there, a little bit of a grant, um, because things like the EOP grant, if you got $600 for EOP, that, that paid for your entire school. You know, it doesn't sound possible today that $600 would do anything. Um, but it did pay for your school. It's basically like handing someone a ticket um, to say you can come to the university for free um, mm -hmm. if, if you're a first-generation low-income student. So outreach, you know, it grew out of that because they said, it's great you opened up the doors, but how do students find out about it? You know, how right. does a student at, at South High, at Foothill High, East High, uh, who doesn't even know there's a university down the street, you know, six miles away, how do they even know to apply that you've got this that will get them in and get them this support? And so the campuses had to take this action, right? And it said, let's create programs or reach out to the high schools and get the word out and get them assistance with the application and show them how to apply and how to, how to fill out the paper fee waiver that says they don't have to come up with the application fee. Uh, but it was really a, a breaking down of barriers. And that's the spirit of, of EOP, but it's also the spirit of, of outreach programs. Um, so, so knowing that as, as the history, um, you know, how do, how do you see, Darius, how do you see outreach functioning at CSUB? Um, and how, what are some of the challenges you face running the operation um, 
and, and addressing all the constituents. You know, you have to, you have a lot of people that want outreach to be a certain thing. Uh, you have community people who want outreach to work a certain way. You want uh, elite faculty to, to have outreach work a certain way and recruit a certain type of student. And, um, you know, you have uh, special programs, you know, that, that want outreach to reach out to you know, different students, athletes, those sorts of things. Um, so what are some of the challenges that you think you face, uh, your, your, your department faces uh, in, in addressing all the needs of those constituent stakeholders? Yeah. Right. Wow. That's, that's a real big, deep question. Let me start off by saying this. We, I, I have a couple of different approaches to that. The first thing is, is that, as mentioned before, we have identified 36 schools that we will do um, our primary uh, outreach to. And so what I mean by that is I've, uh, those 36 schools, you know, I have, I have three counselors. Each counselor has 12 schools and their charge from me is that during the academic year and in between the two semesters, they have to intentionally go to those schools a minimum of twice. And what I mean by that is two times in terms of programs that they initiate, that they start with the school or the counselor that they're gonna put on their calendar, all right? That does not include anything that that same school would also call them for. So that same school may call them for an application workshop. That same school may call them for a college fair. Uh, some, one of the teachers out the blue might say, hey, I want a college rep to come and talk to my class. So, so there's potential, on, uh, again, on, on the low end for a particular, one particular school, that school might only get two visits. But there also might be a school that might get five visits or six visits. Uh, because any school that's in our area that calls us to do something, we are duty bound and responsible to comply with that request. We are not allowed uh, to turn down a request from a high school that's in our given uh, identified area by the chancellor's office. So that's the, the minimum standard that we, we try to meet. Now, with some of the other things that are challenges, for example, the CSU system has a uh, African-American initiative uh, or, or initiative for almost every cultural group. Um, and so the chancellor's office access, we want you to, 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 to uh, you know, provide the, uh, those cultural groups with some extra outreach, you know, make it a point to invest your time um, in recruiting these students. Okay, fine. Well, now the challenge becomes uh, budget. Uh, because for example, here at Cal State Bakersfield, um, you know, since, since, you know, let's take the African-American initiative. Well, we, we have a, a significant African-American population that is already spread out in the schools that we go to, okay? But let's. But if I wanted to to target African American students in the LA area, or African American students in the Bay Area, where we have uh, higher concentrations uh, of that population, well, now I have to spend gas money, possibly airplane money, a hotel, uh, because we tell our recruiters if if you have to go somewhere and 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 you have to travel two hours just to get to the place uh, that you're going to, uh, we allow them to get a hotel. Uh, and spend the night if they have to. So now budget becomes an issue in trying to reach out to other uh, cultural groups. Um, some of the other uh, things that uh, come up as challenges, and I'm actually going to be doing more research on this because I think that what some of the things that's been happening, um, I don't think should be happening is, is the, uh, the, um, the result of the effect of Proposition 209 on uh, recruitment uh, practices. Uh, sometimes it can be restricted uh, because we can be accused of being discriminatory because we're focusing on one cultural group or dynamic when we do some outreach activities. So one of the things that I think is good that CSUB has uh, that you didn't necessarily allude to, Steve, but I know that, that you recognize it, we have different departments on our campus that do recruitment activities, even though it may be for a specific demographic. Um, so, such as your, your, your department, EOP, we have CAMP, we have ETS, and all of those departments um, together really make a, a big difference in the recruitment efforts of CSUB as a whole. Um, and um, I, I am happy that those departments have been able to sustain themselves 
uh, because of grants or whatever it is that the funding comes in. Because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about, hmm, what if we lost camp? What if what if EOP didn't get their funding? What if what if ETS didn't get their grant? Well, the university still needs to do recruitment. All of a sudden, it falls on the uh, uh, outreach. Well, outreach is is limited in in uh, man and women power. Um, even right now, I'm down a recruiter, um, but because of the effect that COVID has had on uh, California's budget and everything, I have been told I cannot fill that position. In fact, I've been told I may not be able to fill that position until 2223. <laughs> now, recently, um, recently, you know, the the they they're saying the budget numbers are looking a little bit better than what they expected. So I'm hopeful that this summer, uh, Dr. Cantrell can will tell me, hey, go ahead and get that recruiter position filled. Because uh, right now, I am doing the work of a recruiter as well as a director. So, so, so I have 12 schools <laughs> that I'm trying to take care of uh, through the rest of this uh, uh, academic year uh, in terms of our, uh, our, our recruitment efforts. Um, and then the, uh, the other thing that I would say with regards to, to, to your question, um, I think it's just so important that uh, an outreach department uh, takes the opportunity to reach out and do as much as it possibly can for any group, for any student. Um, um, you know, well noted what you said that these outreach departments started uh, in, in the wake of, of what was lacking in certain communities and the opportunities that they were given. And that was absolutely necessary. Um, um, now we have developed um, to a place where, you know, there is serious competition with universities to get students, period, <laughs> you know, regardless of where they come from. Uh, we, they just want the students. Um, and so I have a special place in my heart, of course, for any of the students that are from disenfranchised groups. And I try to make an extra effort to service uh, those communities and needs. But I also know that my directive is to serve anyone and everyone. So I am glad when there's resources on this campus that take departments and other professionals into areas where I'm not going right now uh, to talk about outreach and recruitment. Um, last thing on collaboration uh, that I mentioned, um, our, our campus does a good job of, you know, um, the athletic department, they reach out to middle schools as well as high schools and they invite students to come on to watch uh, basketball games and everything like that. And in the last two or three years, they've asked us to say, hey, we're inviting all these students on campus. Can, can your office provide tours on campus for the students when they come in right before they watch the game? And so we've been able to collaborate them, provide information to those students. And on one particular year, we gave tours to like four, maybe 5,000 students that were all coming in to watch one of our basketball games. So, um, you know, uh, it's, 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 it's good to do that type of stuff for the community. Um, and given that uh, Bakersfield is a diverse community, we are hitting a lot of groups um, on a regular basis all throughout the year. And we just need to continue to do that. And in the areas where we're weak, uh, identify ways we can strengthen. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to follow up on that, but I'm going to give a hook. I should have given it before I asked my question. Uh, but toward the end of the podcast, I want, I want Monica to keep me back, loop me back and let me tell a story about public enemy because it's something that none of your listeners have heard and it's just going to blow their minds. So that's back in my radio days, we call that a hook where you give them something at the beginning and it comes back later. You know, that makes, keeps them, keeps them listening. Uh, but so ask me about public enemy a little bit later for the end of the show and things lighten up a little bit. Um, but you know, circling back to what you, what you just described, um, you know, there was a sense, and I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to borrow a phrase from a good friend of mine, a former EOP director, he said, uh, I'm sure he didn't come up with it, but he used it all the time. It was, if you do, if you do what you did, you'll get what you got. Um, and I think that reflects a lot with universities and recruitment. Um, you know, I'm a, my mom um, went to CSUB. It was her local university to be able to go to, to finish a teaching credential so she could be a teacher. She got it, ended up getting her uh, credential in biology so she could teach junior high biology. Um, that was in the late 70s, early 80s. And that was, that was her opportunity to, to do that. Um, but in a, in a way, um, the university was doing what it did and it, it got what, what they got, right? Which was a predominantly white 
uh, predominantly female, which my mom is a white female, right? She added to that demographic. Um, that's what the university would still be, I think, without the type of work that you do, that, that EOP, EOPs have done statewide, that ETS has done as a federally funded program. Um, it is difficult, right? It is, it is an extra effort. And it was even back in the, in the 70s. It wasn't necessarily, you know, the expense of a hotel and going to Los Angeles, but even just going out to the rural areas, you know, you know, they had gas money to drive out to Shafter, to, to California City, to Atchafee, to get word out to these students um, in Wasco, let's say, where they're, you know, their parents don't know what it takes to get into college. They're in high school. That was one spot you got them all together and you knew they had the college prep coursework because that's what they put everybody in. But unless you go out there and make that effort, um, you, you'll just end up with what you had, which is the a service university for the surrounding area immediately around the campus. Um, and that's not what, you know, that doesn't benefit our, our region. Um, it doesn't make wealthy taxpayers that we can tax to get our jobs continued, you know, and it doesn't, doesn't improve our roads. It doesn't do anything until we uplift all communities. Um, then, you know, we're going to sing, right? So let, let me bring this back to my question, which is looking at your charge, knowing you have the two audiences, right? The official audience where you have to say like, oh, we have to be available and open to anybody. And we have to serve these campuses, anyone who calls us. Um, and then your own personal moral charge to say like, well, we also need to get this, these doors open and get these students in. Um, what, do you, what do you think is the toughest part of your job? Toughest part? Mm. Well, you know, when it comes to trying to outreach to the communities that you know need it most, um, I struggle with trying to identify how can I approach this one group that I know I will have access to at the high school and not make it look like I'm only concerned about that group, right? So, so you know, like I can't call up, I can't call up a counselor at Bakersfield High School and say, hey, um, let's set up an, a, a, a session, a, a college-going session in your auditorium uh, with, with only your Black students. I can't do that, right? I can't call up and say, hey, I want to I set up just with your Latino students. It has, it has to be everywhere. So, so now it becomes with your ninth graders or your 10th graders or your 11th graders. Um, and, and the reason why I'm separating that out is because sometimes, depending upon the group that you're in front of, kind of determines what you can say and what you can't say. Uh, because there are certain, um, there are certain uh, ways that you can say things to one group that wouldn't work with another group. Because, you, because if you have a connection with their struggles uh, and their culture and what they're dealing with, you can send a message that, that hits them to where they're like, oh, I understand now. Oh, I'm making a connection now. Um, for example, with, with African-Americans, um, you know, I, I, I really hope and wish, I hope that African-Americans are taking the opportunity to look at things uh, like documentaries and movies or different things that, was, that, that were made to show the historical context of where they were to where we are now. Uh, just, you know, and, and of course, this is February, so there's all kinds of, of additional um, types of programming on cable and TV right now that's reflecting the African-American experience. And just today, uh, this morning, before I came uh, up here to the job, I'm, I'm, I'm doing some stuff on email, but I got the TV on, and uh, this show comes on on the History Channel, and it's talking about uh, from freedom to now, I forget the exact title, but it was talking about some conditions and some things that was going on in the mid to late 50s. Okay, well, now I was born in 69. So it, it wasn't really, what they were showing wasn't too far removed from when I was born. And they were talking about schools and, and, and how everything was segregated and how you know there was no intermixing between white people and black people at all. You know, um, and so they, they, they were showing how the, the challenges as, as cities began to, or, or little towns or, or uh, housing developments began to integrate. They showed a scene where the, 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 in this one little area, this one black family wanted to move in um, and all the, the upheaval that was caused with, with one black family. 
they even went so far as to say that um, schools for the blind, all right? So this means that the kids can't see each other. They were even segregated. So you had a blind school for black kids and a blind school for white kids. And I'm like, wait a minute. So they can't see each other. They can't even tell who's black and who's white, but you still want to segregate them? I mean, it's, I mean it, was, it was just crazy. I was just like, wow, this is, this is deep. Um, so, so, you know, with all the things that they were showing and the challenges, uh, you know, the, 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 the whole thing between, um, you know, you have to walk in, in, into the, the back door of the store. You can't walk through the front. You, you know, the separate water uh, fountains um, and the upkeep of it. Um, um, and then knowing that, uh, what is it? I think they reported that at white schools, uh, the, the monies that were spent was twice the amount than at the black school. So there was this uh, disenfranchisement type of, of system that though they wanted to show on the outside that it seemingly looked equal, though separate, we knew that there was no equality uh, within that separation whatsoever. And so now um, when, when, when groups don't know about that past and know how important and significant now your education becomes, um, they have more of a potential to, to not care. They have more of a potential to not be concerned about it uh, because it hasn't been presented to them from a perspective that shows it is in your best interest to pursue your education, number one, so that you don't go down a road uh, uh, that was in the past uh, or allow somebody to do something to you that was way in the past. And it allows you to be able to be competitive. It allows you to be able to understand what's going on with society and, and move forward. Um, and it gives you a greater understanding and sense of your humanity and the equality that we all have um, um, on this earth. Um, so, so, you know, part of that frustration is um, the type of message that 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 you send, you know, uh, you know, in 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 my studies, you know, there is there's there's these two concepts that are that are really profound. One is called social capital, another one is called cultural capital. And and social capital is all about the type of experiences uh, that uh, one goes through and are exposed to, primarily because of what your parents have been exposed to. And then cultural capital, of course, has to deal with your communities. Uh, wh what they go through as a community, as a group of people, the amount of knowledge that you have. And a lot of time those things cross and intermix. And so, so, so one of the arguments, and, and, and we just had uh, myself and other recruiters, uh, uh, directors of other Cal States, we're talking about how um, we're finding that when we're talking to the black community here in California, that we're losing a lot of them to the HBCUs. Well, why? Well, because they have, um, a, a, a significant amount of social capital that is at the HBCUs uh, to where they are um, uh, treated well, they are given opportunities, they are um, um, uh, given all the support that they need. There's no beating around the bush. They lay it all on the line um, and, and it's, a, it's a much more uh, supportive system for them to get through. Whereas when they go to the, the universities that are predominantly white, uh, the social capital is is very limited because of the because of the cultural background and the cultural things that they have gone through. So you know, if I want to be effective in my recruitment, I need to be able to be aware of those type of things and then be able to speak on them. Um, um, but again, there's there's a fine line because if you can't send a message that's going to be for all groups and all peoples, uh, then then now um, you you could be you could uh, get into some trouble. So, you know, um, our presentations that we give the students is standard. You know, it's the same presentation regardless of who I'm speaking to. And so I have to find a way to, if, if I'm in, um, if I'm looking or if I'm making a presentation to African-Americans or to Latino students or Asian students, um, sometimes I have to be strategic and, 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 and know what to say and what not to say for the purposes of motivating them and moving them uh, to a place to where they say, you know what, this is what I want to do. Uh, education is key. So, so when I'm making presentations, I would say that would be probably one of the harder things to do, uh, so I can make education relevant to them 
uh, not only from a economic perspective, but from a cultural perspective as well. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's so true. I mean, there's this, there's this kind of magic trick that EOP did, a lot of equity programs did in the mid eighties. And that's where they got away from race. Um, they said, well, let's look at first generation low income. Because if we approach it that way, we're not bringing in race, we're not excluding anybody. We're just saying, let's focus on this population based on socioeconomic factors. But I think we can't ever really get away from race, right? Like the, the HBCU um, recruitment issue that we've, we've always faced. You know, you get the, you know, people of incredible talent, you just love to come to CSUB, but they're, they're, they're going to HBCU, they're going to Howard, they want to be a part of something where they can be in a black sorority, like how many, you know, uh, they want options with black sorority, look at Kamala Harris, right? Um, and what's how how great of a recruitment was that? That the vice president elected the United you know, vice president of the United States, you know, as part of a black sorority. Like that is a huge recruitment for black sororities to to recruit, right? Um, and and a recruitment piece for Howard now as well. Exactly. <laughs> but the but with what what I think we lose sight of when we when we look strictly at socioeconomics, we take race out of it, and we take uh, we ignore talent talent and brilliance, genius, that's everything there. We, we have to recognize what we lose as a community. And I mean, the, the Kern County community, the Bakersfield community, when we farm out our talent, right? We send away our best and brightest students to places where they feel they'll be more, um, more comfortable in that learning environment. Because if they, if they look around them and the universities around them, they feel like they're not reflected on that university. Let me go someplace where I am reflected. Well, there's no guarantee those people will come back and uplift our community. So if we're constantly, what we call the brain drain, right? Like when, when you have a miserable place, all the, all the smart people leave, right? And the place becomes more miserable. Um, so I think I, I, I'm completely in agreement with you on that. That's such, a, such an important point about the importance of being out there and, and showing that we have a university, we have a, a, a culture on campus, we have a life. And if you don't come, there won't be that life. You know, if you go el elsewhere, um, then your community won't be uplifted. But again, that becomes that, that argument. You have to be talking to the right audience when you talk about community because some people just don't care about the community. They want to get out and go elsewhere. So um, I'll pass it over to Monica. But uh, you know, thank you for all that, Darius. And remember to bring me back to that public enemy conversation because it's, right. it's, it's awesome. Absolutely. I just wanted to kind of piggyback off what y'all are talking about because when I think about taking race out of it, I immediately think, why do we need to take race out of it? Because it's like when somebody addresses me, I think an old mentality used to be, I don't want you to consider my race, but I really feel like my race is, it's, it's right here. It's on my face. It's a part of who I am. It's, it's important in every part of my life. So in order to take that out of conversations or in terms of how someone addresses me or how we address students, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be race. It can be gender. It can be, um, you know, a socioeconomic factor that maybe is not as, you know, as represented as our races by our appearance. But I think that's a really interesting concept. And that would be a great podcast topic. But um, I appreciate you bringing it up. And, and that's kind of how it resonated with me. But Darius, I know you've already spoken about, you know, your road to higher education and that your dad wanted you to go for civil engineering and things of that nature. But, you know, um, what are your reasons for staying here? I know it's obvious by, you know, you have a very passionate perspective in terms of um, outreach and the inclusion of students and things of that nature. But, you know, our students want to know what are the key factors for you in staying here and where do you want to go in your career? Like, what is your dream for yourself? Because you mentioned you're in the EDD program right now, right? Right, right. Okay, well, before I go there, let me, let me make a statement because I don't, I don't want people to... Um, make any assumptions about the, the last part of the discussion. Um, I want everybody to know, I, I sincerely believe that everyone, regardless of your cultural background, regardless of the color of skin, uh, religion, sexual orientation, whatever, I believe that everyone deserves an education. And if you want one, and, and, and I happen to be someone that can help you, then I will do that. Um, uh, because I believe that education really is I think I think some famous person I forget who it was since says that that education is the great equalizer. Uh, it puts everything now on a level to where um, you 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 can't complain. 
um, about not having this or having that once you get that education because it, it changes, well, it levels the playing field, but it also changes the playing field that you're on if in fact things are not equal for you. Um, so so I, I really want everybody to understand that. I guess that my thing is that because I'm, I'm, I come from the African-American community and I see what happens to the community where there is a lack of education. Um, um, in, in terms of my belief, you know, we take a look at Thurgood Marshall and what he did uh, with uh, Brown versus Board of Education. Um, to me, there should, given the time frame that that came in, there should not be any reason why there are still people of African descent, and even I would suggest also of Latino descent that that have been in the in the country a long time, that there are still people who are the first person in their family to go to college. Right. I, I, I'm I put it this way: my kids are going to be fourth generation African Americans going to college. Fourth generation. That's that's almost unheard of, but it's because. Uh, you know, that act allowed access and my parents, um, my, my wife's parents, they all went to a university and at least got their bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. um, my dad is a product of 13 kids. Um, every single one of my aunts and uncles, except for maybe one or two, have got a bachelor's degree. And now what do they do? They pass it on to their kids. And then their kids are going to pass it on to their kids. In, in my house, I told my kids, you have to go to college. You will go to college. You don't have a choice in the matter. <laughs> I literally told them that. They, they don't have a choice. And, and, so, and so I have three. Two of them are in school. Uh, the other one uh, will go. In fact, I remember about two weeks ago, my daughter asked me, she said, Dad, what if, I, what if I don't want to go to college? My immediate response was unacceptable. <laughs> I said, you know, that, you know, so, so you're going to be put on a track to, to go to college. Now, in terms of the laws of the land, once you get 18, you know, of course you have your every single right to, to move out the house and I can't make you do this or I can't make you that. But when, but, but when that happens, you're going to be prepared to go to college. And if you just choose not to, because you're an adult now and you're 18, okay, that's on you. But I've done my part in making sure that you're ready. Uh, so I just, I just think that is so vital. Um, and I forgot your question. <laughs> um, I think you answered my question. <laughs> Why are you so passionate about it? Oh, and the second part was, uh, where do you want to go in your? Oh, career? okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, from 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 again, um, from getting into a career of education, I think that it's just so vital uh, to spread that message. Um, I enjoy uh, giving people that opportunity, letting them know what they need to do in order to access higher education. Um, you know, and, and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a Cal State, it could be a UC, it could be a private. Um, I, I know enough and have been involved in this, um, uh, this career to help assist anyone uh, get into just about any school. Um, and, and then, you know, where I want to go, you know, that's weird because the unfortunate thing about living in the United States is that we're in a capitalistic society. And so that means money drives a whole lot. Um, you know, I, I, I wish that we were in a situation where, you know, uh, any career, uh, high or low, any position, uh, anything that you wanted to do uh, could, could, could sustain you and a growing family. But that's just not the case. You know, the reality is the, the more kids you have, the more money you're going to need. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, it, it, that, you know we're, we're, we're in a society where, uh, inflation, uh, our, our, our cost for products has not, uh, and its increase does not match uh, the increase of salaries. Uh, you know, Steve and I could, could tell you, I, I remember when gasoline was a dollar a gallon. <laughs> All right, it, you know, it's, you know, it's at, at one point in time, it was five, it got up to five times that much, you know, because of, you know, different things that may happen around the world and oil shortages or whatever. So, so there is always this increasing need of, of um, finances. And so I'm simply taking advantage of education and work experience to provide the opportunity to, to move up uh, in a variety of, of, of places. Um, so um, personally and, and professionally, I would like to get one more promotion before I retire. You know, so, but 
I'm kind of at, I'm not, I'm not necessarily at a glass ceiling, ceiling so to speak, but I, I have my master's degree. I'm, I'm, I'm a director of a department. Most of the positions that would be considered a step up from here, the majority of those individuals have doctors. Right. So, so if, if I'm going to try to be competitive with that, that means I got to get my doctor. Right. Um, so, so, so that's what I'm positioning myself for. As far as where I want to go, I, I hope and pray that that opportunity is right here at Bakersfield. I love, I love the university. I, I love the city. Um, and, um, you know, I've moved around so much. I've told my wife, we ain't moving no more. We're going to die in this house. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's hard to move, you know. Uh, um, uh, but so if, 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 if the opportunity doesn't come here um, at Cal State, uh, maybe um, a BC or another institution to where I don't have to move, that right. would be great. Uh, so, so, um, um, uh, but you know what I, I've halfway thought because of all the craziness that's been happening in our nation's capital, I've thought about running into politics to provide some sense and morality to those areas, <laughs> but I don't think I'm popular enough to uh, run for public office. Uh, but you know, um, I, I, I'm just one that also is, is likes to help. I, I'm a, I'm a definite believer in uh, a servant leadership uh, type of model and mentality. Um, and, you know, um, I, I would reach out my hand to, to anyone uh, if, if, if they express the need and, and, and that they need help. I mean, anytime I see somebody uh, that needs help, you know, are homeless or anything that, that someone may express to me, I mean, my, my, my heart it hurts. Uh, like, like, for example, all of our, all of our uh, countrymen and citizens um, and people that's living in Texas right now under yeah. that crazy blizzard, no water, no heat. And it's been at least, you know, two, three, maybe four days. Um, my heart goes out to them. I mean, it, it, that, that's, that's a hard place to be in. Um, so, you know, I, I, I just, I just want to help people. And I, and I've just found my niche in doing that uh, by way of um, education. Yeah, thank you for being so candid and also for talking about your own career goals and career challenges. And I really appreciate that because even at this level, it's hard to navigate that, right? Even when you're working within the system to understand what the next step is and how to take it. So I appreciate you being so open and honest about that. That's cool. Thank you. Um, so anyway, all right. Well, Steve, any final thoughts? You wanted to come back around to your hook. So take us there and then I'll move. <clears throat> us all right. So you, you brought up public enemy and that's that is my favorite, what I would call hardcore rap group, because that was yeah. what they they defined themselves as hardcore to get away from hip hop and what hip hop was turning into, right, as right. far as protest rap, um, which I would lump in NWA with. Um, again, lyrics are much more uh, vulgar. You know? um, they went places that you know more more of the uh, Miami sound was going to like two live crew and Luke mm -hmm. and all those guys were going to go as, 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 as rough as they could talk is what I would say. But I, we had an opportunity. Um, there were three of us we were undergraduates at CSUB. Uh, I'll, I'll list them by name. Dave Moten, who's a chair of English at Bakersfield college. Now uh, his brother, Will Moten, who was on the ASI board, we got ourselves on ASI on one of the programming committees. And the campus had typically done nothing on campus. They would do the, the jazz festival, which is great. Uh, they would do graduation, and that was it. Um, and we said, well, we got this money. The students put all this money together. Why don't we do something good? You know, they're used to doing like potato bakes and stuff like that. And so there was an opportunity because Public Enemy was touring with U2 at that time. And U2 was playing a show uh, with them, Public Enemy opening down in LA. So we got word that they would be willing to come to CSUB and play at CSUB if we would pay the money to do it. Wow. And so it was something like $80,000 or something like that. And we had that much in the budget. So um, we, we voted, we took over the committees that made, needed to make it happen. And we brought Public Enemy to CSU Bakersfield, 1992. Wow. Um, what was so memorable about it, and even Tom Morello, uh, this, this is the other thing, it's like the band's opening for P Public Enemy because they brought people to open for them, right? Right. Um, they brought Farside, which most people probably haven't heard of, but they also brought in a little known band called Rage Against the Machine. Oh, wow. Who opened for Public Enemy. 
And so that gave them one of their first, you know, you know, West Coast tour type venue things when they when they could do that. And so if you talk to Tom Morello, who's the guitarist for Rage Against the Machine today, because I heard him interviewed and he actually brought up Bakersfield and how how our how our how our how our city's reaction was to that coming to campus. And there was so much hype. There was it was going to be the end of the world. It was going to be the black takeover of Bakersfield. Like <laughs> yeah. they said, they were going to bus up Crips from LA and they were going to take <laughs> over the amphitheater. And so it scared everybody away who would go because they all thought, oh no, there's going to be there's going to be riots, you know. It's pub, you know. So uh, the night came, right? And this is after a day where my friend Will got to actually walk through the Valley Plaza Mall with Flavor Flav and like go shopping with him. <laughs> which was which was nuts anyway but the night of the concert comes and i'll never forget it because we walk in and we just walked right to the front because it's the huge csub amphitheater and yes. there were maybe i'm talking like 125 people that showed up for the That's concert it? right oh wow because everyone was terrified it was all over the news they had more cops i'm sorry peace officers they had more peace officers working the venue they had dogs, they had x-ray, you know, uh, metal detectors when you walked in. And the entire time in the concert, there was a police helicopter circling what? The, the entire concert, aiming the spotlight down. And I'll never forget because they, they, were, they were hyping the album Apocalypse, Apocalypse 91, The Enemy Strikes Black. And by the time I get to Arizona it was one of their big hits because they were pushing yeah. for Arizona to recognize the holiday for Martin Luther King, right? Right, right. And so he did, Chuck D did that entire song pointing at the police helicopter as it was circling <laughs> around and he didn't stop. He didn't even look at the audience as it was circling. He was just pointing at it saying like, you're the problem, you know? Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a great memory. I just wanted to give you that because very few people know that story. Uh, how, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't the one who, who pulled the trigger, but I was definitely uh, on the committee and, you know, one of the positive votes and an and attendee at the concert. And my parents didn't want me to go. They thought I was going to get shot or something because of the, wow. the fear that was going on. And now you look at what they talk about now and it seems so timid compared to, um, you know, other, other activism and other social justice activism going on right now. You know, it's like, how, how could you not like public enemy? How could you be afraid of them? It's just, they just had a message. You were afraid of what they had to say. Yeah, um, man. That, yeah, it, was that, a, it was a great proud moment for me. Yeah, that that's a great story, man. You know, and, and, I, I don't have I don't have a similar story, but you know I did have some things that happened at Northridge when I was a student that we did, um, you know that's that's you know during that same time frame, you know one of the things that we did at Northridge was um, we knew that the African American students we we kind of got together and not that we didn't conspire against the institution, but what we did was we said what positions on campus control the money. And, and particularly what student positions controlled the money. So we had one year where we were successful and we had uh, uh, the Black Student Union and this president. So that's one position. The Associated, the associated uh, Student Body President uh, was Black. The, uh, we had the, the programming element of Associated Students, we called AS Space. They were the ones that uh, got the money to do our programs. We the the chair for that position uh, was black. We had a university black president in Dr. Blenda Wilson. Uh, the 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 chair for graduate studies was also African American. And then we also had uh, a Pan African Studies department. So we had the, there was people in positions that was controlling money that was African American, and we pushed for. Uh, a presence on campus of peoples of African-American descent from a variety of areas and it was dynamic. So we had everyone from Dr. <laughs> Minister Louis Farrakhan, Maya Angelou, Tremaine Hawkins, the gospel singer, um, Biggie Smalls when he was alive. Uh, we tried to get uh, uh, DJ Quick, but they wouldn't let us bring him on. Um, and let me see. Oh, Dr. Ivan Van Sertema, who wrote a book, uh, They Were Here Before Columbus. Um, Dr. Naeem Akbar from Florida A&M, uh, a black psychologist in his own right. Um, another gentleman by the name of Dr. Jawanza Kunjufu, who wrote uh, Conspiracy to, to Destroy Young Black Boys. Um, and so there was just this wave of, of consciousness and recognition 
uh, an affirmation for African-American students. It was probably one of the greatest years that I spent on that campus in terms of the programmatic piece that affirmed um, you know, who we were in our experiences on campus. Uh, so, you know, I, I, you know, and, and again, us as African-American American students, though there was this outcry of people being afraid, you know, nothing happened. There was no riots. There was no fights. There was, there were, you know, everything went according to plan. And, and we as students had to fight against the administration to try to tell them that nothing's wrong is going to happen by having these individuals and these presentations here and, and and initially they didn't believe us they and so yes you know we had it seemed like all of LAPD was on campus for all of those events and that was uh, that literally was a waste of taxpayer money because nothing happened wow yeah, that's amazing a moment in history right and how it's how it's moved forward and how it hasn't seriously so all right well thank you steve for taking us back to that point um we're going to start wrapping up our conversation sure. um, we do this with a round of fire questions for our guests so we have our students put together questions they wanted me to run by you cool. uh, it's just answering one or the other and we'll just go through them really quickly all right travel back in time or become invisible back in time hiking or watching movies movies spicy foods or non-spicy foods spicy food but i know it's bad for me <laughs> coffee or tea tea i've never acquired the taste for coffee i think coffee tastes nasty <laughs> okay sports or video games uh sports all the way classical music or jazz jazz Superman or Batman? Superman. Early bird or night owl? Night owl, but then I wake up with a headache. <laughs> Apple or Android? Oh, Apple, but I, I respect Android. <laughs> <laughs> Cold weather or warm weather? Warm weather. I think it's easier to cool down than to heat up. I totally agree. All right, those are fire questions. Thank you for entertaining us and answering them. We have one more segment where we choose a tip, trick, or pick of the week. And it's just something where we choose something we're into, we like, we found interesting, whatever, useful. So I'll let you go first, Darius. Uh, so a, a tip to provide for people? Uh -huh. A tip, a trick, or like a pick. You know, if you okay. are enjoying a certain product or okay. yeah. brand so, right now so so um two quick things um you know a lot of, uh, on on this issue of education the the one thing that i would recommend for in everybody and i know this is personal circumstances gets into this and people's choices um whatever level of education you desire or think you need to get continue to get it and don't stop don't take breaks because you move don't take breaks because you're working Go from bachelor's to master's to doctorate if that's your thing. Because what happens is this, when you, when you hold off on your education, many times you can miss opportunities or you can miss jo jobs because you don't have, you have the work experience, but you don't have the education to match. Um, and so I always tell people, go straight on through, don't stop. Um, um, I, I know I've been passed over for positions because I did not have the the education that they were looking for or or the preferred uh qualifications uh which always amounted to to what education level uh that you're in um i uh, i real quickly at cal Poly pomona they have um cultural centers and i applied to be the african the director for african american center and at that time um i was uh, in terms of the, the 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 candidates um i was the only black male um and I would have been the only black, black male um, in charge of one of the centers. I only had a bachelor's degree. All the other candidates had master's degree. The person who would have been my supervisor called me informally and told me, said, Darius, we like you. You're the best candidate. Everybody wants you on campus. But the vice president said they will not hire anybody that does not have a master's degree. So I, I lost that opportunity. Um, so 
go through, get your education. And then the other thing is a lot of times people don't think about this. Hey, in terms of your job and your future and your retirement, please do some type of investment or retirement vehicle other than what your job may provide. Pay yourself, invest in yourself, start getting a little pot of gold uh, or some type of account that you contribute to that you don't touch at all and you are just waiting for retirement before you uh, uh, utilize that money. That is so crucial right now, especially with our uh, with uh, failing economic systems uh, that may happen as a result of COVID or as a result of any other type of thing. You need to be you need to have your own stash somewhere somehow. Yeah, absolutely. Good tips, Darius. Thanks, Steve. Um, I didn't really prepare one, but I, I was thinking on the fly. Um, I, I got to say, like, the thing I'm loving right now is Audible. I don't want to just oh plug a specific, I don't want to plug a specific Amazon product. I, I, I use Amazon. Everybody does, it seems like. Um, I'm sure there are other great, um, you know, online book uh, stores that have their own product that do audiobooks. And it's not, I'm not just trying to plug a specific product. I'm talking about the the concept of it, like the idea of just like plugging into a book and either like using it as a companion piece and having the book itself there and then getting someone to read it to you. It just, it just, it just forces me to read more. Um, so if you're a student out there and you're doing something where you're able to access an audio book uh, through Audible or some other service, um, like I read, I'm reading books I've never read before because I didn't have time uh, in like master's program in English, uh, like Tess of the D'Urbervilles, which was, some of these are just amazing performances where like, you know, they'll get someone on there's such a great vocal talent. They'll do multiple accents of different regions of England in the reading of a book that's taking place in pastoral England. Uh, there are Star Wars books, which I know I'm a geek, Star Wars geek, but Star Wars books that have like special effects, like the one voice talent does mimics of everyone's voice from the movies, you know. Uh -huh. So I, I, I can't recommend it enough. I mean, I, it's, it might be kind of expensive to people. I think it's like 15 bucks a month. Right. But there are, again, other services out there. But if you haven't tried it, I thought it was something for old people or people who spent five hours on the road every day. But um, <laughs> it's, it's not. I find myself able to read a lot more um, by having that access. Yes. I'm obsessed with Audible. I would be obsessed with any app that was reading things to me, you know, books. But Honestly, I like Audible. It's, I think for what you get, it's relatively inexpensive. And if you buy books that you don't like, you can exchange them. It's yeah. fantastic. You can return them, exchange them. And I find that I'm, I'm listening to books that I don't necessarily want to buy and have like on my bookshelf, or maybe I just think it's, you know, a little bit more sustainable, you know, sustainably minded if I just don't buy all these books and I listen and so some of the books like on nutrition and health and fitness that maybe I'm not going to read again, I listen to them, but the ones that I know I'm going to read again or truly study, I have to have the physical copy in front of me, but I agree. I love Audible. So on that note, my tip actually happens to be something that we're working on with our guardian scholars right now. We're piloting our little program with my student assistants is we're really working on time blocking. Um, I don't know if any of you are finding uh, it difficult to stay productive, to be on a schedule, stay on a schedule right now, but we are, you know, we are very honest with one another. And so we're really working on time blocking our personal time, our work time, setting daily goals and, you know, not being obsessed with them, but really just having a handle on how we're using our hours or how we're not using our hours. So time blocking is basically where you set up a schedule for yourself. It's flexible, but where you are in like, where you're in command of your time and how you use it and you are planning for it. So, and that means everything from getting up to working out, to fixing your breakfast, to going to work, taking your breaks, like that's all in your schedule. And not necessarily that you have to have that out all the time and view it constantly, but just be aware of it and put like better habits into practice. So we're definitely working on it as a program. We're meeting about it um, twice a month. We're kind of giving each other a little support group. So if you ever wanna jump in, um, we decided yesterday we we're gonna be meeting about our time blocking twice a month as well as financial literacy. So we have a little guardian scholar support group going where time blocking is concerned. So I wanted to share that with everybody today in case it's kind of a, 
I think it's kind of like in some people's opinions, a no brainer, but for others, it's not because our students are struggling with staying on schedule, staying on their, you know, study um, schedules, and schedules and things of that nature. So anyway, I wanted to share that today. We have a word of the day. So our word of the day today is equalizer because Darius, you gave us the quote, education is the great equalizer. So if you are listening and you're trying to get some program credit, our word of the day is equalizer. On that note, I wanna thank you so much, Darius, for joining us today. It has been a pleasure um, getting to know you more, getting to understand your work more, being inspired by your, your worldview, your perspectives on life and on education. Thank you so much for sharing that with us today and being so candid about that. Steve, thank you for co-hosting with me. I really appreciate it. Always glad to have you here. We want you around more. So I'm gonna send you the outlines so you'll join us. And uh, again, please make sure that you're following us on Spotify. We are on Instagram at CSUB Guardians. We always have our program updates on Linktree that you can access and that are emailed to you weekly. And um, any final words from my co-host and my guest today? Just thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Uh, and uh, another topic or something comes up, you want me back on, just let me know. I'll be right here. Awesome. Thank you, Darius. Thank Steve. You. Oh, yeah, I just want to thank Darius, too, for not just being on the podcast, but all the work he does uh, to promote our university to our students. Um, and thank you, Monica, for inviting me back. Um, it's always fun to talk to everybody.